10. Thank you. Job chapter 3 on page 510. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now, I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and rulers of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins, with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child? like an infant who never saw the light of day. There, the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave drivers shout. The small and the great are there, and the slaves are freed from their owners. Why is light given to those in misery? and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave. Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing has become my daily food, my groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. This is the word of the Lord. Better? Good. Good. Anyway, good morning. Right, so as we come now to God's Word, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that your written Word of Scripture may now and always be our rule. 
your Holy Spirit, our teacher, and your greater glory, our supreme concern, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. As I'm sure everyone will know, last Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, which means we are now well and truly into this season of Lent. It's the time of the year that was set aside by the church to prepare for Easter. And these six weeks will culminate in the Easter weekend as we reflect on the events of the Last Supper and spend time together on Good Friday at the cross. And these moments are so necessary as we move from the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday to Easter Day itself. But what about Easter Saturday? A day which up until recently has had very little impact on me. I know it as part of the bank holiday weekend. It's a time when we celebrate the beginning of spring. I know it's a time that when we buy and we often gorge on chocolate. It's a very important day in the sporting calendar. Uh, this year, Bath will be in Leinster to play in the European Cup quarterfinal. And they need to play an awful lot better than they did yesterday. And it's also a break between Good Friday and Easter Day. But what about the first Easter Saturday? For those most immediately affected, it was not a day of preparation. It was not a day of relaxation and fun. For those first followers of Jesus, the first Easter Saturday must have been an utterly appalling day. When they responded to Jesus' call to follow me, they'd given up everything. And over time, they'd come to believe that he was the Messiah, long promised in Scripture, who would set Israel free and restore it to all its former glories. And for them, that was surely confirmed on Palm Sunday as the people of Jerusalem welcomed Jesus in as their king. And they would have been at the very forefront because they were Jesus' closest followers. They must have felt so good, dreaming of a glorious future. So how had it come to this? And so quickly, for all their protestations of lifetime support, when it came to the crunch, they let him down. They'd fled, so that apart from John, Jesus died alone. And if they'd taken their leader, who was to say that they weren't next? Terrified, humiliated, grief-stricken and ashamed, they hid away together on Easter Saturday. Heart sick at the way they'd let him down, with no idea whatsoever of what the future held. And one question burning in their hearts. Why? 
Why did this happen? It was all going so well. Or so they would have thought. And where was God in this anyway? Why did he let it happen? And in the silence of that dreadful day, God seemed absent, which is very much our theme for this morning. And this is an experience I'm sure all of us are likely to have had or will have at some point. And it is vitally important that we acknowledge this. For life isn't all Palm Sundays. There are Easter Saturdays as well. And God uses them both for our good. And this was something Job knew only too well. And we're going to look at his story now to see how it relates to us today. Philip Roth's tragic novel, American Pastoral, which I noted this week is just being made into a major film, follows the exploits of someone who lives the American dream through his high school and college and then into adult life. He becomes a star athlete. He marries Miss Jersey. He takes over his father's business and settles down. But his American dream turns into a nightmare. His daughter unexpectedly leaves home and joins a terrorist group. So you can see how up-to-date and relevant this is. She commits an act of terrorism, which leaves one person dead, and then she becomes a fugitive. And from that point on, the novel tracks the father's desperate search for the daughter he loves, and his hopeless attempts at trying to make any sense of what has happened. For as it is said of him, he had learned the worst lesson that life can teach, that it makes no sense. Which, without God ultimately, I believe it doesn't. And in many ways, this novel is a modern-day version of the story of Job. Except in Job, God takes centre stage. And when we first met Job in chapter 1, his is a picture of contentment. He has a happy, settled family, great wealth, and he's described as the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. And if you were here last Sunday, we were considering this with Simon. But this is all about to change because of an argument in heaven as Satan asserts before God that there is no sincere love for him on earth. You're wrong, God answers. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God, who shuns evil. But Satan is going to have none of it. Does God fear, sorry, does Job fear God for nothing? He sneers. You've blessed him, but stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he'll surely curse you to your face. 
So God allows Satan to test Job. And what happens is as if you are standing in a beautiful church with a stunningly arranged and ordered glass window. Moments later, the window implodes and there are fragments of glass everywhere. You are standing in the middle of an inexplicable tragedy. For out of nowhere, as it must appear to Job, his life is laid in ruins by a series of disasters that rob him of his possessions and his children, which raises the question, will he remain faithful to God? And his response is a confession of faith. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Even in the bad times, he could praise God for who he is. At that, having attacked those closest to him, Satan now assails Job himself, as he thinks that if he attacks his health, his loyalty to God will collapse. So Job is afflicted with painful sores over his whole body, which leave him defeated Figured and racked with pain, so bad that he takes a piece of broken pottery and scrapes himself as he sits among the ashes. What a picture of total and utter misery and how far his life has changed. And at this point, even his wife turns on him are you still holding on to your integrity? She says to him, curse God and die. Cheerful stuff. God's, Job's response is a key theme of the whole book. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In other words, will we only trust God when things are going well? a very modern temptation. To answer his own question, Job has to plumb the depths of human experience. He's had enough, as we see in chapter 3, which we've just read together. For here is the death wish, as seen nowhere else in Scripture. Job opened his mouth, and he cursed the very day of his birth. May the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said, a boy is born. And in similar vein, until he longs for the release of death, as he has no peace, no quietness, no rest, but only turmoil. And it may well be that it is for us now, or has been, our experience. And we don't know what to do with it. And if that is the case, we can learn from Job. And the first thing to realise is that he doesn't put on a good face 
and pretend that all is well. He tells it well and truly as it is. And this is prayer as lament. As with David in Psalm 22, words repeated by Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if that is our experience of life, we should tell God so. Everything that affects us matters to God. The darkest subjects are proper subjects for our conversations with God. When Job articulates his hurt and confusion, he is bringing everything into God's domain. Nothing in his life is out of bounds to God. The prayer of lament can be a way of facing up to reality. When we're at the end of our tether, when we're inside screaming, where are you, God? Are you there at all? Why don't you do something? Walter Bruegemann, in his book, The Message of the Psalms, calls laments like Job's statements of disorientation. Statements of disorientation. And he then goes on to say, the harsh and abrasive speech of a statement of disorientation may penetrate the deception and say, no, this is how it really is. In such a case, Language leads experience. So the speaker speaks what is unknown and unexperienced until it is finally brought to speech. It is not this way until it is said this way. And it is therefore no wonder that the church has avoided these psalms of lament. For they lead us into a dangerous acknowledgement of how life really is. They lead us into the presence of God where everything is not civil and it is not polite. They cause us to think unthinkable thoughts and utter unutterable words. Perhaps worst of all, they lead us away from the comfortable religious claims of modernity in which everything is managed and controlled. In our modern experience, but probably also in every successful and affluent culture, it is believed that enough power and knowledge can tame the terror and eliminate the darkness very much a religion of orientation operates on that basis. But our honest experience, both personal and public, attests to the resilience of the darkness in spite of us. The remarkable thing about Israel is that did it not, did not banish or deny darkness from its religious enterprise. Instead, it embraces the darkness as the very stuff of new life. Indeed, Israel seems to know that new life 
comes from nowhere else. It means we have divine permission to stand in God's presence with our heartbreak. But we are not left lamenting. For God understands. He hears. He doesn't want to have a near of religiosity or properness. He wants us to be honest with him. And after all the trauma that Job has been through, God finally answers him. He has raged against God, but only because he believes in God. Not once throughout the drama, which ends with God's response from chapter 38, has Job yielded to unbelief. Doubt often, but never unbelief, despite the extreme provocation. And now God speaks. Standing in Job's shoes, we might reasonably expect the Lord to spell out why things happened in the way that they did, and perhaps even be apologetic for all the anguish he'd put him through. But not a bit of it. Instead, God parades creation past Job for his admiration. Through a series of unanswerable questions we find in chapters 38 to 41. Were you there when I laid the earth's foundations? Have you given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. And many, many more. As God allows creation to speak for him, assuring Job of his greatness and his ever-present nature. And through this experience, Job begins his journey towards a vision of God which will be deep, wide and high enough to cover life as it really is and to a place where God blesses the second part of his life more than the first. But like Job, we must travel before we arrive at that healing vision for ourselves. Through darkness into light, through death into resurrection, through disorientation into a new orientation, many times over. For the disciples on the first, first Easter Saturday, and for Job, God sometimes seems absent. And in preparing for this morning, I became very aware of the danger in assuming that suffering is to be equated with God's absence. I have spoken here in the past of my own experience when God, life hurts through pain, 
through guilt and depression. But I have to be honest and say that even at the lowest point, I was still aware of God's presence and I know that I would have not got through it without him. But I have also met people for whom the long, dark night of the soul is a reality, for whom God seems distant and silent. One of the most profound experiences I've had of ministry was working at the RUH alongside the chaplain at the time, a man called Chris Roberts, who some of you may have met. He had the most attuned spiritual antennae I've ever encountered. So that when we did ward rounds together, he would know at what level to speak to people, from the previous day's football results to the deepest personal issues. And one of the things he was most concerned about was to move people from the why question, which if dwelt upon could become very destructive, to the how question, which faced the reality of the situation and how it could be dealt with. For you will have noticed that God doesn't answer Job's why question, but he reveals himself as the ever-present Lord who sometimes chooses to hide his face. And God's presence is enough for Job. Surely, he says, I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen. If we get a series of cloudy, overcast days, it can seem that the sun has gone missing. But we know from all our knowledge and experience that it is there, and that one day it'll shine again. And as with Job, God has now left us ignorant of his presence through creation, through scripture, and supremely through Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. But until God draws all things to himself at the end of the age when Jesus will return, we are very aware that we live in a risky, imperfect world where bad things happen, where there is pain and suffering, and where we often do not know why things happen in the way that they do. But the question for each one of us is this, as it was for Job, do we trust God? And do we believe his promises not just in the good times when the sun shines and everything is going brilliantly well, but in the bad times when everything seems dark and overcast. For this, in the end, comes down to a matter of choice. 
Do we choose to trust God so that we never doubt in the dark what he has told us in the light? Ultimately, God is Lord of all. Nothing is outside of his control. So in our dealings with him, nothing is off limits. However much we may try to conceal, he knows anyway. And he still loves us. And this was manifested supremely at the cross, where Jesus took all our sin and pain into himself so that we could be freed from its consequences. This was the ultimate proof that God does not stand aloof, but is with us, and he is for us every step of the way. And as Paul says in Romans, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God is sovereign, and he was working his purposes out in Job's life and in the lives of the disciples on Easter Saturday, even if it was not what they would have chosen. And like them, we can know that God is for us, even when for a while he hides his face and seems absent. For it is then that his impact on our lives may be at its most profound. I'm going to finish with a well-known poem by Mary Stevenson, Footprints in the Sand, which I trust will be on the screen as we reflect on our response to God's word. One night, I dreamed a dream. And as I was walking along the beach with my Lord, across the dark sky flashed scenes from my life. For each scene, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to me and one to my Lord. After the last scene of my life flashed before me, I looked back at the footprints in the sand. I noticed that at many times along the path of my life, especially at the very lowest and saddest times, there was only one set of footprints. This really troubled me, so I asked the Lord about it. Lord, you said once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way but I noticed that during the saddest and most troublesome times of my life, there was only one set of footprints. I don't understand why, when I needed you most, that you would leave me. He whispered, my precious child, I love you and will never leave you, never ever, during your trials and testings. When you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you.